And the story begins. Chapter 5 of Tanya, page 75. So, several weeks ago, let's go back a little bit, let's take a step back. We started off explaining that everybody has not just two inclinations, two drives to, towards very different places, but actually two different personalities, two different souls, the divine soul, the animal soul. We began elaborating on what this divine soul is, peace of God, part and parcel with him. Um, we explained what the divine soul is comprised of. The, the divine soul, and the same is with the animal soul, but we're going to talk about that later next week in chapter 6. But the divine soul is basically a soul means how I think and feel. My intellect and my emotions, my intellectual and emotional, and emotional uh, processing, that's my soul. I have two of these conflicting with each other. Last week, on the last two weeks in chapter 4, we explained that the divine soul, not only a soul, is not only comprised of intellect and emotions, but it also has with it behavior. Behavior, when we say behavior, we mean thought, speech, and action. Because those are all behaviors, those are all choices. You could choose what you think about, right? You can't choose what you think of, but you could choose what you think about. You could choose what you say, you could choose what you do. You can't choose how you feel. That's your soul. Or it's very difficult to, I should say. You can't choose um, the way you think, right? What you think of. You can only choose what you think about. That's the difference between your soul and the soul's behavior. The soul's behavior, thought, speech, and action, we refer to it as garments. You could change your clothing. It's much harder to change yourself. Okay, let me get that clear in my head. Okay. You can change, you can't change your behavior, you can change You can behavior. change what you do. You can change what you do. It's very hard to change who you are. Can't change who you are. I wouldn't okay. say you can't, it's difficult. It's not, the goal of Tanya is not necessarily to focus on changing who we are, more as to get a pulse on our behavior. And in other words, we could, I can't control my impulses necessarily, unless I'm a tzaddik, unless I've totally internalized the divine soul. I can't control my impulses, but I don't have to act on those impulses. I mean, people who are alcoholics, they're still going to have the impulse to... I can't decide whether I have that impulse or not. I'm going to have the impulse. I just don't have to act on it. Okay. It's like the computer. You know, the pop-up comes up. I don't have to click on it. But I, my computer is far from perfect. It's going to be getting pop-ups. The tzaddik has totally internalized the divine soul. He has a good filter. Pop-ups don't even come. Right? He doesn't even get those pop-ups. But us regular folk, we get pop-ups, and it's our, so we're going to have the impulse. It's our choice whether we act on it or not. Okay, so simple impulse is, you know, like to, to eat tray, and you could, you know, okay, the, you pass by the store, the bacon smells good. The impulse is, okay, give me a bacon sandwich. Yes. And you can, but what about... Uh, and and, the, and the, so... We don't have to eat that bacon sandwich just because we want to. Tzadik won't even want to. And it's okay to want to. 
It's just not okay to actually do it. So you're saying somebody who's um, this get very complicated. Somebody who is gay can never be a tzaddik. <coughs> That's a good question. Somebody, most people can never be a tzaddik, and we'll get to there in, in chapter fourteen. So according to Torah, there's somebody who's who's gay can't necessarily control that. They don't have to act on it. That's the Torah prohibition, right? Right. Behavior. Um, doesn't, the Torah doesn't tell us who we are. It tells us how to behave. Who we are. It do, it, now, it does tell us who we are, and, but to control who we are, to change who we are, that's very difficult. Um, most people, you know, the whole goal of Tanya is not to become a tzaddik. It's to become, help us strive to becoming that middle ground person. So are you saying that a tzaddik would never even have the thought of eating that sandwich? Yeah, wouldn't cross his mind. Wouldn't even cross his mind. The way you know you're a tzaddik, set your timer for 24 hours. For the next 24 hours, follow every single one of your impulses. Do whatever you feel like. And if after 24 hours, all that you did was studied Torah, performed mitzvahs, was a good person, was nice to people, and that's all that happened, that was your impulse, so that, that's an indication you're probably a tzaddik. A rasha is the other extreme. Follow your impulses and you do bad. A bainin is the middle. I have the impulses, I'm not acting on them. Now, the impulses would be coming from the animal soul, which we'll talk more about, but the divine soul impulses, the divine soul's set of thoughts and feelings, intellect and emotions, are divine, are holy. So the divine soul will want to think about God, and the more it thinks about God, the more it will feel God, the more it will behave in that way. The behavior, thought, speech, and action, are referred to as garments. Why are they referred to as garments? We said because you could change them. It's harder to change yourself, it's easy to change garments. You could change your behavior, you could substitute behavior. <coughs> then last week we said something fascinating. I found it to be fascinating. When it comes to a relationship with God, so there's, there's your connection to God, your thoughts and feelings, and there's the connection through mitzvahs, that's the garments, right, behavior. The Altar Rebbe says that the connection through mitzvahs is greater than the connection you could achieve on your own. What you do is greater than, what, than how you feel. So when it, and, and this is true with any relationship. When it comes to a relationship, especially a marital relationship, what I do for that relationship says a lot more than just how I feel about the relationship. Because, if I, because how you feel is the engine toward your behavior. Is, the, is there to power your behavior? Is there to motivate behavior? Um, the more... Sorry, the, the, the more um, passionate I am in my behavior, the more genuine the relationship is. But ultimately the feelings are there to motivate behavior. Behavior meaning the Torah mitzvah. So we said last week that if my relationship with God centers around behavior, it centers around something objective. God told me this is how I can connect. If it centers around feelings, it's subjective. It's defined by how I feel. How far can that get me? There's only so much I can feel, right? Which is why the Zohar says, book of Kabbalah, 
No thought can grasp God. Because however much I understand him, that's just my perception of him. So the Altar Rebbe says, no thought can grasp him. Then how do you get him? It can't be through thought. It has to be through something else. Mitzvahs. That's, that's where mitzvahs comes in. It's through something deeper than thought. And, you, you know, it's, it's just, just like in a relationship. You know, you're trying to understand your spouse. No, just do what they said. <laughs> right? Just, just listen to them. Just do what they said. Stop trying to understand. <laughs> it's important to understand as well. It's important to feel as well. It is. Murray's not going to like me for That's this one. That's called Mission Impossible. Murray's not going to like me for this. He's leaving the class. <laughs> How long have you been married? I'm, I'm not giving marital advice. I'm just saying no, what the Tanya said. Wait until you've been married 25 years. <laughs> I'm not giving experiential advice. I'm just saying what, what the Tanya's say. Or my, my interpretation of it anyway. So. <laughs> We're going to have an empty class next week. No, I'm <laughs> yes, we'll be back. <laughs> Hopefully everybody will forget. erase this from the record, right? No. So the, the focus is not on how I feel. The how I feel motivates how I behave. The behavior is a much deeper sense of a relationship. Okay. This takes us to chapter 5. So now that feelings, sorry, action, mitzvahs, or a deeper relationship than feelings, because one is objective, one is subjective. Within mitzvahs, there's two levels of connection. In general, there's the performance of mitzvahs, and there's the study of Torah. And the Altair Rebbe says the study of Torah is a much deeper relationship. It's a deeper connection. Why is the study of Torah a deeper connection than the performance of mitzvahs? Any thoughts? I wrote down. I wrote it down. Conclusion: If you say the words of Torah out loud, studying Torah and performing mitzvot, the soul becomes equipped to receive the divine revelation in the afterlife. Okay. And that was the conclusion. Okay, that's the conclusion. But how do we get there? <laughs> we practice because. Studying Torah is something that you need to do, the action of doing it, because the more you do it, which is a mitzvah in itself. Okay, good. Um, so studying Torah itself is a mitzvah. Right. Is, is understanding sure. it. It's understanding what you're studying. Exactly. So in other words, when I do a mitzvah, I'm physically engaged. When I study Torah, I'm not only physically engaged, I'm mentally engaged. So the, the relationship is much deeper. But mitzvahs are, I think, more important because you do that on earth. When you're in heaven, don't you study the Torah all day? Okay, good. Good. So th there's a whole... But studying Torah, I mean, like when you do it within a group, you get different opinions. So your understanding of what you're reading may not actually be factual. Or factual to the point that you are correct in your understanding. But, okay, there's a process and you get to a conclusion. The, but, but, but Zach, you ask a good question. Okay, there's a whole discussion in the Talmud and throughout Jewish literature. What is more important, the study of Torah or the performance of mitzvahs? And the answer to the question, the short answer is yes. Yes to what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The short answer is yes. 
they, they both have, they both represent different aspects of the relationship. Within, Tan, within Jewish literature in general, within Tanya itself, you'll see certain times where it exonerates the performance of mitzvahs, and that's really the focus. You'll see certain times where it exonerates the study of Torah, and that's, it's just different parts of the relationship. So which one is better is a hard question to ask, but they both, we can examine their, their, um, their advantages, their various advantages, their pros and not cons, but, but what they each bring to the table, to so the relationship. They both share the same step as far as like, like level one. Put, put it this way. If you're doing a mitzvah, you're in a good place. If you're studying Torah, you're in a good place. <laughs> but but they, they both represent different aspects of the relationship. But you know what? I think that, that there are people who study Torah, non-Jews. They study Torah uh, when uh, um, uh, a minister studies Torah. Right. So um, how could that be more important than the performance of the mitzvah? Then, on the other hand, if you, you know, like, we could um, study Torah day in and day out, may not understand everything, but could study it, okay, and good. then go, then... Um, okay, good, 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 good. No, 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 so we're, we're, in our context here, we're talking about a Jewish person who has, who is doing a mitzvah, a Jewish person who is mentally engaged in Torah study, and understands it. You know, you have an English book, or, or you're at a class, or you're, it's a situation where you can comprehend it. So within those two situations, which one is a deeper relationship with God? A mitzvah, you're behaviorally engaged. Torah study, you're mentally engaged. Not just behaviorally. You're also physically engaged because you're physically uttering the words. You're physically involved. It says the Arizal. The Arizal was a famous Kabbalist in the 13th or 14th century. Lived in the city of Tzfat. Most of what we know about Kabbalah is from the Arizal. He didn't initiate Kabbalah, but he taught a lot. Uh, much of Tanya is based on his works, or on his students' works. It says that Arizal was physically drenched after studying Torah. He was so engaged. He would physically be sweating. It's, it's a, we are behaviorally engaged when we study Torah, but in contrast to the performance of mitzvahs, we're mentally engaged. And the way the Altar Rebbe um, articulates this, he says you take an idea and you think about that idea, any idea. That idea is in your mind. It's imprinted on your brain. Right? Once you know something, you could forget it, but you can't unknow it. You can't unknow something. It's there. It's, part, it's encompassed by your mind. That mind, that idea is just takes over your mind when you really understand it, when you really become part of it. Now you have an incredible connection to this idea because it's literally in you, right? So when you write an idea, it's on the paper, it's just something you did. But when you think about the idea, it becomes part of you. And the way the Altered ever words this, let's take a look on page 78. Page 78, the last bold paragraph. Um, third to last paragraph on the page is the last bold paragraph. This is a phenomenal merging experience of two beings. There is no other merging experience like it. Nothing remotely comparable, uh, comparable exists in this physical world where you become completely one with another entity from every conceivable perspective. And yet you still retain your own existence. So you're still you, 
but you become, you totally merge with the Torah. Now the Torah is God's wisdom. You're essentially becoming one with God. This is what Kabbalah will refer to as intimacy with God, which we'll, we'll talk more about that soon. But here's an interesting insight. Let's take a look on our sheets here. Oh, sorry, yes. So on our sheets here, page, uh, uh, text three. So let's contrast the connection with God, the relationship through Torah. And we'll, we'll, we can apply this to interpersonal relationships soon, but let's connect, contrast the relationship with God through love or the, the relationship through Torah. When it comes to a relationship with love, it's important, but as we said, it's subjective, it's limited. Avraham, according to Kabbalah, Abraham, represents the trait of love, right? Moses, Moshe, represents the trait of Torah, because Moshe taught the Torah. So God calls Avraham. He says, Avraham, Avraham, and he said, Avraham responds, here I am. The same verse appears in context of Moses. And he said, God calls Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Hinani, right? But what's the difference between the, the two verses? This is easier to appreciate if you understand the, the, can, the trap, the cantillation notes. But if not, we'll still make sense of it. Avraham, Avraham, there's a pause between the two. Yeah. Moses, Moses, there's no pause between the two, between the two words. Which teaches us some, uh, which gives incredible insight into what we're saying. When it comes to a relationship with love, represented by Avraham, Avraham represented that trait, there's going to be some sort of limitation, some sort of stop, because it's subjective. When it comes to the study of Torah, that's not a connection through love, it's a connection through intimacy. There is no limitation, there's no stop, there's no period, there's no comma, it just, you go straight there, there's a straight connection, a direct connection. In the English, it's, it, it's um, there's that little line between the two, between Avraham and Avraham. By Moses, it doesn't have that. In the Torah, an understanding of the cantillation marks, the cantillation marks, the trap, serves as punctuation as well. So you'll know how to punctuate a, st a statement in the Torah. You'll know if it's a question. You'll know if it's a, how the sentence works based on the trap. And, and based on this trap, there's a pause between Avraham, Avraham. There's no pause between Moshe, Moshe, because a connection through love. So what's that when you're reading from Exactly. So they know all the. Yeah. So when I'm doing it with Raleigh, I'm just doing the end of the verse. It's not paused. Yeah, those guys knew the whole shebang, the whole Megillah. You know they. Yeah, they knew all the signs with their hands. I can't do that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there we go. <clears throat> Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> Did you miss that class? It's more like people pick it up. There's no, I don't know. There was no, I never had that opportunity, I guess. You Yet. <laughs> you had to read Torah and receive. No, but to, to learn how to do it with the hands. With all of the How to sign it, how to sign language. It. I, yeah, I can't I, do that. I watched that. It's interesting. Some people are, are really are good at it. So we spoke about earlier, previous discussions how in the book Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim by King Solomon, he relates the relationship between us and God as that between husband and wife, right? Mm -hmm. 
God being a groom, Jewish people being the bride, Mount Sinai being the wedding canopy, and that's the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, is the marriage contract, right? That's why when we sinned with the golden calf, God broke the tablets, breaking the marriage contract so it doesn't look like we're quote-unquote cheating on God, right? It's never happened, broke the contract to save us from sin. The, so what is the Torah in this relationship? What is the Torah in this relationship? If God is the husband, we're the wife, we're the bride. The, the Mount Sinai is the wedding canopy. What's the Torah? The rabbi? Well, it's not the ketubah. It's not the ketubah. So I'll tell you what it is, and it will all click in beautifully. What is the difference between a husband and a teacher? There's no emotional connection. There's no emotional connection, right? Good. You don't have to cook for the teacher. You have to cook for the <laughs> Teacher, you just give him an apple, right? The husband, you have to... You've got to do a lot more than that. That if you can. <laughs> oh. you have a hard time telling people that your I, wife doesn't cook for you. I'm not talking about you, I'm just making a general statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> Convince people that your wife doesn't cook for you. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of differences between a husband and a teacher, but one main difference, one fundamental difference. This is, this is incredible. A teacher they're both givers. What they have in common, before the differences, what a teacher and what a husband has in common, they're both givers. Not to say that a wife's not a giver. We'll get to that in a second. A teacher and a husband are both givers. A teacher gives something that he has. He doesn't give who he is. He gives what he has. Information. Knowledge. Knowledge. Maybe even skills, maybe even experience. If it's a good teacher, right? But he's giving something that he has, that he possesses. That's why the outcome of that, the student has a new possession, but nothing really came out of that. A husband is giving who he is. And I, I mean this not just spiritually and emotionally, but I mean this even biologically. A husband gives his wife something, a piece of who he is physically. Which is why, one of the reasons why a divorce is so painful. You're ripping out a piece of yourself that you gave. You gave something, you gave yourself to somebody, now, now somebody's ripping that away from themselves, that hurts. A husband is physically giving who he is, biologically, through intimacy. But you would want your husband or your spouse to also be your teacher. I would think in many ways, because you want to be able to also learn from that person, whereas you certainly would not want your teacher, to you know, vice versa. I think it's really important that a husband or a wife has the same traits. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you both want to learn from each other, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But in terms of what the role is, now what you want in that relationship, what your expectations are in that relationship, some people want a teacher, some people might not want it. Everybody's going to have their own. Right. But in terms of what the role is, and this is just biologically true, 
not just spiritually. The husband is giving a physical piece of who he is. That's why the outcome of that relationship, a carbon copy of the husband, a child that looks like the parents, right? It's not just, oh, now the wife has something additional, like the teacher, right? Now, now the student has something else. No, the outcome is something independent. He gave his own independent self, his existence. The, the outcome is a physical independent existence. We said earlier in chapter two, where does this physical benevolence come from? It comes from the brain. We said that the seed that the father gives to the, to the mother comes, originates from the brain. It's where it originates from. The Torah is referred to as God's wisdom. It comes from his brain. The Torah, that's the intimacy in this relationship. When God gave us the Torah on Mount Sinai, he wasn't our teacher. He wasn't just giving us information. He was giving us him. He was giving us him through the Torah. When we study the Torah, we're actually getting him. We're literally getting a piece of him. Through that Torah. Just like through the physical intimacy, the wife is receiving him, which takes an incredible amount of humility and openness to be able to do that. To receive somebody else on an emotional level to be open to somebody else in your life is it incredible. And it's the same thing for us, to, op to open ourselves to have God in our, light, in our lives. Through the study of Torah, it requires open-mindedness to try to understand a new perspective on life. And when we do that, we're merging with God, like we said, a phenomenal merging experience like no other, like the Al-Tarebbe said. An incredible connection, incredible bonding experience through Torah. Now, there are many books out there that offer different interpretations of Torah. And I'm not speaking of non-Jewish. You're saying within Judaism, 100%. Within Judaism. 100%. So, I mean, you might not be studying the Chumash, which is the direct interpretation with all You of might be studying a comment. Yeah, it all, it's all part of the package so deal. So it's still considered that you're studying Torah. 100%. Whatever, okay. 100%, because God... When God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, he gave many different perspectives of that Torah. Okay. So you could study Rashi's commentary on Torah, and you could study another commentary on Torah. And, but it, it's all engaged, it's all part of Torah, it's all from, it all originated um, from Sinai. Now how that works is a whole other discussion. A good one, a controversial one, perhaps. We'll save that one for another time. But here's something interesting. So, so here is a paradigm shift, I think, in how we understand what the function of Torah is. The Al-Tareb is basically saying that the function of Torah is not just an instruction book. Torah is an instruction book. It is a guide to how, to, how, to, how we should live our lives. But it's not just an instruction book. It's not just the book of our history, but it itself is a relationship. It itself is intimacy. Which explains, by the way, why the Greeks were so anti-Torah in the story of Hanukkah. If you look at what they said, let's take a look at text five in our sheets here. 
This is from the Hanukkah prayer that we add into the Amidah, the Al-Hanisim prayer on text 5. It says, in the days of Matasyahu, the son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean, and his sons, when the wicked Hellenic government rose up against your people Israel to make them forget your Torah and to violate the decrees of your will. It did, they didn't want to make us forget Torah. They wanted us to forget that it's your Torah, that it's God's Torah. They said, you want to study Torah, you want to be academic, you want to be intellectually engaged in your culture, beautiful. We love culture. But you want to develop a relationship, it's your Torah, it's God's Torah, with a God that we don't believe in, not happening. We don't approve. There was once a comedian who said, who's crazier? The believer, who, the, guy who, the, the faithful guy who believes in a God he doesn't see? Or the atheist who's offended by a God he doesn't believe in? <laughs> but this is essentially what the Greeks in the story of Hanukkah were trying to accomplish. They didn't want us, you want to be intellectually engaged in your culture? Beautiful. But if you want to be intellectually engaged in a relationship that we don't approve of, not happening. The Torah is a relationship. The Torah, if you look in the beginning of the Torah, it starts with the letter Aleph. That's, I'm just kidding. It doesn't start with the letter Aleph. I meant to say it starts with the letter Bereshit, right? The first word in Torah, Bereshit, in the beginning. Bereshit, the letter Bet. The letter Bet is the second letter of the alphabet. And all of the commentaries try to um, suggest reasons why the Torah starts with the second letter. Once you're starting with number two, why not start with number one? Why does the Torah not start with an Aleph? There must be deep significance. And there's several different commentaries and a lot of discussion on this. Any thoughts before we reveal the answer and how it's relevant to our discussion here? Good. Spot on. Somebody read ahead, no? <laughs> In other words, bet has a numerical value of two. Reading the actual text of the Torah is step two. Step one is knowing who's telling you this text. What is this text? Aleph is one, God, a relationship with God. That's step one. So, and this is true, and again, in any relationship, when somebody says something to you, don't just focus on what they're saying, focus on who said it. Because depending on who it came from, it might have to be interpreted differently. In any relationship, we focus on who's saying it, not just what is being said, and it's the same with the Torah. What is being said is bet, is step two. But who's saying it, that's, the more, that's step one, that's the more important thing. And it's, that's what Torah is, it's a relationship with God that, that we're being open to. It's an intimacy, a level of intimacy with God. Any questions, thoughts, comments, controversy? Good guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not teasing. <laughs> Let's take a look on page 79. So he says, in some contexts, this would explain why Torah study is superior to the performance of mitzvahs. Because, here's what he says, the second bold paragraph, it's the second to last paragraph on the page, 
since with all of the mitzvot regarding speech or action, it's something that you're doing, there's a one-way absorption of that person into the divine. As the soul is absorbed into God and surrendered by the light of God from head to foot. So when you do a mitzvah, you're being encompassed by God. You're being embraced by God. You're being enveloped by God. Right? So mitzvahs are referred to as garments. Mitzvahs are referred to also, as we said last week, as God's will. Because will is something that totally encompasses your entire self. Right? Your feelings are in your heart. Your thoughts are in your mind. But your will is you. is everywhere. Right? When you really want something, you go there with your entire self. God's mitzvahs are totally encompassing just like will. Like a garment. However, in contrast to Torah study, let's take a look on the bottom paragraph. But with the mitzvah of knowing the Torah, in addition to your mind being absorbed into the divine wisdom, you also absorb the divine wisdom into your self, into your mind. When it comes to Torah study, it's a two-way relationship. Not only are you being embraced by God, but you're embracing God. You have Him within you, literally, because you're thinking about Him, your mind encompasses Him. This is real intimacy, where you're totally united. That's why mitzvahs are referred to as garments, Torah is referred to actually as food. As he says later in the chapter, he says uh, um, on the bottom of page 80, this is why Torah is called bread and called food of the soul, based on different passages throughout the Torah. Because it actually goes within you, it becomes part of your blood, it becomes part of, part of your physical growth. When you study Torah, it becomes part of you. Your relationship with God is not just something you're submitting to, as you are by a mitzvah, it's becoming part of you. So just like a marital relationship, you can become part of your spouse or you could just do what your spouse wants. And they're both very important parts of the relationship, but one is represented by Torah, one is represented by mitzvahs. Am I becoming part of God or am I just doing what God wants? They're both very important. But this is why um, if you have an opportunity, according to Jewish law, if you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, or you have the opportunity to do Torah study. Which one takes precedence? Torah study. Torah study, right? Let's take a look on text four. Text four in our sheets here is from the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is the Jewish code of law. The Shulchan Aruch is quoting this, or adapting this from the Talmud. It says, Torah study is equal to all of the mitzvahs. If one has an opportunity to perform a mitzvah or study Torah, if the mitzvah can be performed by someone else, don't stop your Torah studies. If, however, no one else can perform that mitzvah, then, the perform, then perform the mitzvah and return to your studies. So theoretically, so, so you have an opportunity to study Torah or walk an elderly person across the street. Important mitzvah. If somebody else is able and willing to do it, continue studying Torah. But if you have an opportunity, and if not, then you have to stop your studies, obviously, and help them. Right? We don't want to be one of those um, righteous fools, as the Talmud calls it. Right? Um, righteous fool says, I can't help the drowning person because I would, God doesn't want that I'm studying Torah. It doesn't work that way. But theoretically, if, nobody, if somebody else can do the mitzvah, we wouldn't stop Torah because Torah takes precedence over that mitzvah opportunity because, as we said, it's a deeper level of intimacy. It's a deeper relationship. Contrast to matzah, 
for example. I could study Torah and I could eat matzah. Can't do both at the same time, right? Why matzah not? on Pesach. Why not? Let's say. You, you, get, you get crumbs in the Flemish. You get crumbs in there, right? Um, so matzah would take precedence because nobody could eat matzah for you. Hmm. Or if you're home and you're a, a woman or a man and alone and it's Shabbos and it's time to light the candles, you have to, and study Torah, I guess you would light the candles and then go back to study Torah. Exactly. You wouldn't say, I'm, I don't need to light candles, I'm studying Torah, and Torah right. is a deeper relationship. It, right. it wouldn't work that way. Right. And it, it's the same thing with, with a, yeah, but that's basically it. It's a mandate. It's a mandate to study Torah. But it's a bigger mandate. Yeah. So, so, so the idea is... Unless somebody can light them for you. You, you would, I mean, in general, you would, you would, you would stop your studies, even, to, even if somebody else could do it for you, because... Can someone buy the Hanukkah lamp for you? So, certain mitzvahs you can employ, appoint a messenger to do it for you. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a mitzvah to make Kiddush Friday night. Right. But you don't always... In some places, everybody makes Kiddush. Different, different customs, different, and they're all good. Some places, you have one person make Kiddush for everybody. Right? You're pointing a messenger to light to, to do that mitzvah for you. I have a question on that. Mm -hmm. So, very often on Shabbos, uh, you know, we, we have lunch, Rally well, makes Kiddush. You make Kiddush. Right. So, he's your messenger. He's doing it for you. But then I see some other people making their own Kiddush. So, some people like to do it on their own. It's just they like to? And yeah. There, there, there's some people say better do it as a group, more people involved in one mitzvah. Some people say, better do it on your, you know, I want to, I want to do the mitzvah. I don't want to have a messenger. And they're both valid. Okay. They're both valid. Good question. Yeah, no, they're both valid. And you tend to see the more observant men doing their own, you know. And I've seen, you know, um, Raleigh just assume that certain people are going to do their own, make an assumption. Yeah. And it's usually correct because those are the people that will do it themselves. Like to do it themselves, yeah. And, and they're, both, they're both valid. There's a teaching, there's a Kabbalist known as the Shalah. The Shalah is an acronym for Shnei Luchot Habrit, which is the name of the book that he wrote. Um, he wrote different teachings. He has a lot of different teachings based on Kabbalah, based on Halacha, Jewish law, based on Jewish philosophy. And he has an interesting insight, which is very relevant to here. We're talking about internalizing our relationship with God intellectually. And here's what he says. Let's take a look at text 2. Text 2 is from Exodus 15.2. And it says, it, this is an excerpt from the song that the Jews sung when they crossed the Red Sea, praising God. And the verse they said, they said, this is my God and I will adorn him, the God of my father, and I will exalt him. So the Shalah explains, if the God is just the God of my father, if I believe, if my relationship with God is just, you know, my father told me there's a God, I'm going to exalt him. He's going to be abstract. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be way over my head. But, go to the first half of the verse. If it's my God, if I made my God personally relevant 
and that's through studying his Torah, then I will adorn him. I could actually have a real relationship with him. If my relationship with God is not just your parents told you, you had, there's a God, so there must be a God, but it's something I took into my own hands, it's something that becomes really part of me. Now I can adorn him. I'm not just going to exalt him, see him as abstract. And that's why when God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, I find this interesting. Look back to text 1 from Exodus 22, the first of the Ten Commandments. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt. I am your God, you will have no other gods before me. But, but what does he say? He says, your God, in Hebrew. There's two ways to say um, you. In English, we don't have this, but in Hebrew, you could say you as an individual, singular, or you collectively, plural. God is talking to millions of Jews standing at Mount Sinai. You would think that he would use the term your collectively, but he uses the Hebrew term, Elokecha, your God, in the singular. Despite there being millions of people there, God is talking to every single individual because he, has, he wants to have a relationship, a personal relationship through his Torah with every single individual. And that's why everybody's going to process and understand in their own way. Although Torah, to some degree, is a subjective relationship because the way you connect to Torah, the way I connect to Torah is going to be different. That's kind of what God wants. That's what makes it intimate. Whereas mitzvahs are all the same. When Moses eats matzah, when I eat matzah, when you eat matzah, it's all the same. But when Moses studies Torah and when I study Torah and you study Torah, they're all different. We all have different minds. Although the relationship is subjective, that's, what, that, that's kind of part of the intimacy that we're developing with God through Torah study. But performing mitzvah could be the, the first step in knowing God. So why isn't mitzvah the same? They, they, they both have something that the other doesn't. Mitzvah is objective, which is powerful. It's, 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 it's the difference between wisdom and will. Mitzvah is, is God's will. Doing what he wants. Torah is explaining his will, which is the wisdom. And the difference is will is something that encompasses us like garments. Torah is something, wisdom is something that we internalize like food. So they, they both bring something to the table. I had, uh, this is going to sound really weird. Can you still have the same intimacy with God if you take a look at the Torah and you say, I could abide by 95% of it, I can't abide by 5% of it? So we're, we're talking about the studying itself. The studying itself is intimacy with God, is a deep relationship with God. Even if you study it and you go, I don't buy this. That's a good question. The actual studying is a mitzvah. Um, when, when the Talmud mentions the debate, what's better, Torah study or mitzvahs? It says that Torah study is greater because it leads to the performance of mitzvahs. The more I study, the more I know, the more clarity I'll have. It does impact our faith. Studying does impact our faith. And I think that would also lead, if you're studying with somebody else, that 5%, could turn into a conversation or reading Rashi and hashing it out, and maybe that 5% becomes after that 4% or 3% by studying. I mean, if you're just reading it by yourself and say, I don't buy that, 
but I think there would be a difference between studying getting a, a bigger picture and studying with a group with different interpretations and and it might take you down a percent. Yeah. Could increase it too because it could increase <laughs> it too, right? Because the in Russia have different opinions on the same subject. No, no. Your truth is the foundation of Torah. Again, we said what makes the study of Torah so powerful. It's not just the the information. It's who said the information, okay. right? So I mean that that's the bottom line. That's why it's intimacy. Just like the 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 letter. I'll tell you a story. There was a a chassid of one of the Chabad Rebbe's, the previous Chabad Rebbe's, I don't remember which one. And he, he was young, okay, and he received a coin from the Rebbe. And he felt, you know, a great Jewish leader took personal interest in him and gave him a coin as a, you know, he felt really good about it. And over the years he lost the coin, he felt terrible, felt horrible. Until somebody pulled him to the side and said, look, you might not have the coin. But the fact that he gave you the coin is still there. <laughs> the reason why he gave you the coin is still there. I might not totally understand the Torah, so I have a hard time agreeing with it. But the fact that it came from God is still there. The reason why he gave it to us is still there. The relationship is still there. Us intellectually and emotionally engaging ourselves activates the relationship that's already there. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, go back to that statement you made about who's interpreting it. This all different interpretations on the same subject is. They're, those are all part of Torah. I know that, but, but is one more valid than the other? Okay, that, on who it is. That's a good question. Is one more. So when Maimonides says has his interpretation, Rashi has his interpretation. They're both equally valid. It doesn't mean we're going to listen to both of them. To, to either to to there's still a system to to who we follow to to whom we follow. I'll give you an example. Which is what is this, then? What is the default? If you don't think either one is right, what is the default? No, they're 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 both. It's not about right. The question is just who we're going to follow. I'll give you an example. We light the Hanukkah candles. We light them on, so on day number one, we light one candle. Day number two, we light two candles. Day number three, we light three, etc. Until day number eight, we light all eight candles. Right. That's not, that, that's actually a debate in the Talmud. There's a debate in the Talmud how you light the Shabbos candles. According to Hillel, the sage Hillel, the famous sage, that's how he says to light the Hanukkah candles. According to Shammai, Shammai says that no, day number one, there's eight days left to Hanukkah. You're going to light eight candles. Day number two, there's only seven days left to Hanukkah. You're going to light seven candles. And the, the, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And the, the, the difference is, are you focusing on the potential? Are you focusing on the actual? How many days are left? How many days have gone by? And there's a whole spiritual significance behind it. There's a whole Kabbalistic significance behind it. There's a whole halachic significance. There's so many layers of Torah and there's different opinions. Bottom line, we follow Hillel. Does that mean we think Shammai is wrong? And what no. was the reasoning why we follow that philosophy or interpretation? It, because there's the philosophy behind it. In other words, Shammai's philosophy is correct, but it's just not what is right for us at this time. Hillel's philosophy is correct and right for us at this time. That, that's basically the difference. In other words, are they both valid in Torah? Yes. Does that mean we're going to follow it? Not necessarily. Yeah, 
I understand the other one. What was Hillel's approach and why you go from one to seven or one to eight versus eight to one? He, Hillel is focusing on, on the actual, not on the potential. There, I'm, I'm confused. What, what is the potential? The miracle happened. There's potentially eight days left. Didn't happen yet. Right, the miracle but, didn't happen because there was enough oil for that first day. Well, yeah, exactly. Okay, so, okay, I got okay, yeah. No, okay, I yeah, 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 yeah. No. So, so, but my, so my point is, when we follow Hillel in, that, in the Talmud, it doesn't mean we think Shammai is wrong. And when you study the depth of Shammai's reasoning, you're studying Torah and you're connecting with God, even though we're not following that opinion. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means we're not doing that. So when Rashi and Maimonides have a debate on how to interpret, a, they're both, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be right or wrong. It's just what is right for us in terms of what we're going to follow, but, but we're talking about in terms of academically, academic study, it's, it's a relationship with God. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is kind of unofficially parenthetical as it comes to the, the flow of Tanya. Because we're talking about, we're trying to understand the soul structure. Understanding that the soul is made up of how it thinks and how it feels. How it comes directly from God, like a, father, a son comes from a father, a child comes from a parent. Understanding that there's the behavior of the soul, the garments of the soul. And we kind of digress into how that impacts the relationship that the soul has with God. Whether through the performance of mitzvahs or through the study of Torah, two different levels of relationships. Next week we'll get into the animal soul. be fun. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And thank you for your story, yes.